I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, well, um, this is part 10 in our series, Evidence for the Bible, and tonight we're going to be looking at messianic prophecy of Jesus. So, specifically, prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. These are things which Jesus accomplished which point to his identity as this particular unique individual that the Old Testament prophesied and told us about. Um, We've already done a lot of stuff um, about specific sections of Scripture, Genesis 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Daniel 7, Ezekiel, all these different passages. But tonight, I'm going to pull from a whole bunch of different places in the Bible, and we're going to bring together like a compilation of prophecies that show that Jesus is the deliverer prophesied in the Old Testament. This, I believe proves the Old Testament's divine origin, along with the other nine videos in this series. I think this points towards the divine, God-inspired origin of the Old Testament. You can't make these statements about any other book on planet Earth that you can make about the Bible. So there's a few things, though, that you need to know before we get started on this like list of prophecies about Jesus. Um, okay, first, the Old Testament is what we're pulling from. When I say Old Testament, I basically mean those parts of the Bible which were written before Christ showed up on earth. It's provable that the entire Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, was written hundreds of years before Jesus set foot on this planet earth. So, B.C., hundreds of years B.C., all of it had been written. It was all accepted as scripture by the Jews. So it's not like Jesus came and afterwards we selected these books that said things that sounded like him, but rather these books already existed as the scriptures of the Jews, and then Jesus came and fulfilled them. Every prophecy I mention today is in the Old Testament, every single one of these. They're all pre-Christ. Now, I've I've said messianic prophecy or prophecy of Messiah, so I want to discuss what that word means, that word Messiah. The word Messiah is actually a word meaning anointed, and that's a Hebrew word. It's a Meshiach or or Messiah, as like an English pronunciation of it is. But there's also a Greek version of the same word. Does anybody know what it is? Christ, Christ right? Christ, or Christos. So we, we bring that into English, we say Christ. So Messiah and Christ are the same word. They're synonyms. It's just two different ways of saying exactly the same thing. Now, this word Messiah, if you're reading the Old Testament, you won't see this word jump out at you all that often. Because it's not the typical way the Old Testament refers to the Messiah. I know that sounds a little confusing. But this word um, is one of those words that the Bible uses to talk about this coming individual. Along with words like son of God. Or the one who is to come. Or the son of David. Or the prophet. There's a lot of terms used in the Old Testament referring to this one individual. That ultimately ends up being Jesus. But by the time Jesus is walking the earth. The popular Jewish way of referring to this individual from the Old Testament prophecies is Messiah. So it ends up being the popular name. He's just called the Messiah. And we carry that forward today. Um, Eventually, these Jews who received the Old Testament from ultimately from Moses and from the different prophets, they started to see that there was one guy, there was this one individual that all these different areas are talking about. And that's when they adopted the term Messiah. And they still use it today. Even modern-day Judaism, Jews who don't believe in Jesus, those Jews, traditional Jews, they still use the term Messiah all the time. They still believe, many of them, most of them, in a coming Messiah. So Jesus, this Messiah, he is the ultimate direction of prophecy. 
He's the ultimate eternal world ruler found in Genesis, found in Daniel, found in Isaiah, found in these various different places. He's the suffering savior, according to the Bible here. That we, These are passages we've already talked about. He's a suffering savior of not only the Jews, but of all mankind. That's what he's supposed to be doing for us. And this is all written well before Christ shows up. But I want to address a complaint sometimes people have. And I want to hit it in the beginning instead of at the end of what we're going to share. That, <clears throat> that this Jesus being fulfilling the Old Testament, that this is like a Gentile fabrication. That's the complaint. Like, like you, you Gentiles, you just made this stuff up. It's not Jewish to say that there's a Messiah or to say that Jesus is the Messiah. But this is not the case. So I want to share with you a couple rabbinical quotes. Ancient rabbis, none of these rabbis are are, are believers in Jesus, but listen to what they say about Messiah. In traditional Judaism, there's a guy named Rambam. Rambam, which is a shortened version of his name, which I will have a hard time pronouncing, so I'll just go with Rambam. Rambam is one of the essentially important Jews of ancient times. There are Jews nowadays who every day, the way that they shave their faces is based on what was laid out by Rambam, by this particular Jewish rabbi. This guy, Rambam, he had 13 principles of Judaism that he said, you must describe to these 13 principles or you're not really Jewish. All right, now here's those principles. I'm just going to read to you one of them. He said that one of the 13 principles of the Jewish faith is that the Jews must believe in the coming of the Messiah, awaiting him every day with unwavering faith. This idea that this Messiah, this Old Testament prophetic character, is central to Judaism. That's a Jewish belief, not a Christian belief. We, we, we adopt it from them. We bring it into our beliefs from them, not the other way around. The Rambam was universally accepted in these, fairly universally accepted in these 13 principles. Listen to what he says. He says, whoever does not believe in him, the Messiah, or does not look forward to his coming, denies not only the other prophets, but the Torah and Moshe, our teacher, for the Torah attested concerning him. The Torah meaning the, the books of Moses. You have the written law and the oral law. He says, it's all about him. In fact, this became um, really, in Jesus' time, a, a, a common idea. That this Messiah character is spoken of throughout the Old Testament. Not just occasionally, but regularly. Throughout all the books of the Bible. Alfred Edersheim, who is a Jewish Christian scholar, he searched the most ancient rabbinical sources. And he found, he looked to find out how many times do ancient rabbis quote the Old Testament saying it's about Messiah? He found 465 different passages in the Old Testament that ancient rabbis were telling us that's about Messiah, that's about Messiah. 465. You can study one of these passages every day of the year and you have 100 left at the end of the year. <laughs> so that, that's pretty, pretty impressive to me. Let me read to you a quote now from the Babylonian Talmud, which is a very authoritative Jewish source. In traditional Judaism, it says, All the prophets prophesied all the good things only in respect of the Messianic era. Every prophecy, every, every prophet, they always spoke in the context of the Messianic era. So they would probably, in fact, many times when a, a Jewish person gets saved, they start to see Messiah in places I won't even point to tonight. They see it even more places than, than Christians often do who who are um, not raised with that Jewish mentality. Interesting. The Talmud also says this, none of the prophets prophesied except of the days of the Messiah. That's in uh, B. Sanhedrin, the Babylonian Sanhedrin, 99a. So, I could go on. 
um, there's there's the Dead Sea Scrolls. When they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found ancient, basically ancient Jewish writings, and they found stuff like 4Q Testimonia, which is an actual document they found that was a, a piece of let's just call it paper for our modern brains here. And on it was written a compilation of five different passages from the Old Testament, all messianic in nature. So they were already before the time of Christ, gathering and compiling various passages from the Old Testament to say, let's grab from here, 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 kind of like we will tonight, to say these are all about Messiah, what will he be like? And in 4Q testimony, it shows he'll have a priestly quality and a kingly quality, just like Christian theology believes he will today, interestingly enough. Um, in fact, this is what the early church counted on. The early church counted on the idea that the Jews knew this, this Messiah was prophesied to come and he was going to show up and he was going to fulfill all these specific places in the Old Testament. So let me read to you Acts 3.24. This is what the New Testament says. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So they saw the current fulfillment, Jesus and the apostles preaching the gospel. They saw this as a fulfillment of ancient prophecies from before the time of Christ. Jesus even said so. Let me read to you a whole section from Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 47. This is just laying the groundwork for seeing Messiah in the Old Testament, right? Here's what he said. You search the scriptures, he says to his fellow Jews, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He says the scriptures are all about him, and they said the scriptures are all about Messiah, and yes, exactly, that's the point. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe? You who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. And who does Jesus say is accusing these people who reject him? Moses, in whom you trust. Wait, Wait, Jesus, how is Moses standing in accusation against those Jews at the time? He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Jesus is claiming to be this messianic character that all of the Old Testament speaks of. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In fact, New Testament faith is all based on the idea that we'll talk about tonight, that Jesus is this Messiah of the Old Testament. That this is what they would do. They would go to the synagogues, they'd open the text, and they'd be like, look, that was Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. And that's how they would preach the gospel to the Jews. They would convince them that the Old Testament had foretold Jesus. Imagine if you had to go and preach Jesus to people using only the Old Testament. That's the early church. And that's what they did. Now, we, we've maybe lost some of this quality, having separated ourselves a little bit too much from Judaism in our, in our own faith and forgotten our roots a little bit. So hopefully... We're getting back to them somewhat, you know, I hope. Well, this might lead to the question, Mike, do any Jews really believe in Jesus? I mean, if, if he's the Messiah, why don't any Jews believe in him? And actually, a lot of Jews believe in him. An increasing number of Jews believe in him. And there's records of, of rabbis coming out saying, I've discovered the Messiah. And then they go, it's Yeshua, Jesus. You know, but the thing is that these rabbis, when they come out and they proclaim that they're now Messianic Jews and they believe in Yeshua, their names are erased off the rolls and they're basically erased from history and they're not given the credit for who they are because it's considered by some that they're like apostatizing and they're abandoning their faith, whereas really they're fulfilling it. They're, they're, being, they're becoming complete and whole is what they're becoming. It's a beautiful thing. 
There are right now on earth perhaps as many as 200,000 Jews who are believing in Jesus today. So we shouldn't think for a second that there are no Jews. It's just that they're not talked about in some. In fact, there's whole organizations out there like Jews for Jesus, which is a fantastic group that I recommend you look into. So the things that we're going to do tonight, it's not a Gentile abuse of the Old Testament. I'm not hijacking their scriptures. I'm not uh, trying to twist it, but rather we're, we're simply walking in the fulfillment of what it always was. It, it, of course, it's about Messiah. That's what they thought. That's what Jesus thought. That's what the early church claimed. Let's just look at those claims now. And let's say, uh, does this seem legitimate? And does Jesus, does Jesus fulfill this? And then finally, we'll conclude with, what are the odds? What are the odds that somebody would, would just randomly fulfill all this stuff? prophesied in the Old Testament. How specific is it, really? So we've already done some groundwork. Uh, we've already looked at Genesis 5, the genealogy there. Uh, Psalm 22, Genesis 22, Isaiah 52 and 53, Daniel 9. Those were all messianic passages. We spent, on most of those, we spent a whole week on each of those passages in our 10 weeks now on prophecy. We've seen that Jesus fits those passages like a glove, but there's a lot more. And tonight we'll pull from a bunch of places, and we're going to play like Connect the Dots. Do you ever play that when you were a kid? connect the dots and so you have like a little little drawing and all it has is dots and you, you take dot one and you connect it to two connect to three connect to four connect to five and you keep going until you find that you have like a shape oh it's an elephant and then you oh now i have a, a drawing and that's what we're going to do with messianic prophecy is sort of connect the dots to go now who does this shape who who is it forming these various things that it says about this coming one so let's start in genesis chapter three the very first prophecy of the Messiah, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Some people call it the Proto-Evangelion, the the first gospel. Um, Genesis 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent that he's going to put enmity or hatred between him and the woman. And then he talks about their descendants and between your seed and her seed. Genesis 3, 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a head injury and there's a heel injury here. The idea is there's the seed of the woman, this coming descendant of Eve, who will defeat the serpent who brought in such terror and horror into the world. He'll defeat this one, the source of this evil that has come at the hands of both him and man. And that this is the very first prophecy. Not, notice, not, it's not the seeds of the woman, it's the in the seeds, plural, of the serpent. But there's like one particular seed of the woman who will defeat, not the descendants of the serpent, but will defeat the serpent. If you read the text carefully, right? It's, there's, there's a descendant of the woman who will defeat the serpent himself, which we know is in biblical theology it refers to Satan. Galatians 4.4 4 talks about this, that Jesus fulfilled this. It says that when the fullness of times had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that there was a nature that, what we're saying here is the, the coming one has to be a human. That's the deal, okay? The first thing, the Messiah has to be human. It's not, he's not an angelic being that comes down with someone that's born into human flesh. It's the seed of the woman. It's the seed of the woman. It's a human male. Now, this is not a prophecy, I don't think, of a virgin birth in this passage, but it's consistent with the virgin birth because it's the descendant of the woman, not specifically of a man. That's just interesting the way it is. Now, that's a very broad, broad brush, Okay? Every human male on earth is now potentially a Messiah, the Messiah, right? But now we need to narrow it down. So the next place that we'll go to is Genesis 22, when God's talking to Abraham, talking to Abraham, and he narrows it down. Of all the descendants of all the people on earth, 
Now the seed, this Messiah, is going to come from Abraham's descendants. Genesis 22:15 says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Does that sound familiar? We went through Genesis 22 before. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So he, there's a blessing to his family, but then there's a blessing that comes through his family to everyone. And this is referring to the seed carrying from Genesis 3 now into Abraham's life. So we're following the seed. The word Messiah is not being used yet. The word seed is. Then Abraham had multiple children, but his son Isaac is the one who will carry this promise. Genesis 21, verse 12, it says, In Isaac your seed shall be called. So we're going to trace this genealogy through Isaac. Then as you continue in the Bible, we see, um, I'm going to go to two passages, Numbers 24 and also Genesis 49, but Numbers 24, 17, speaking prophetically of, um, of Abraham's descendants, the tribe of Judah in particular. Jacob's kids, well, Judah was one of them, and his tribe, it says, Numbers 24, 17, I see him now, I see him, but not now, I see him, but not now, I behold him, but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel, speaking here of Jacob, of Israel, and then specifically ends up being the tribe of Judah that the seed will come from. So we're narrowing it down, it's still pretty broad, the tribe of Judah is pretty big, but it's getting narrower and narrower. This scepter which is a ruling thing. There'll be a king, so the seed is going to be king. Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Forgive me for the speed at which I move. I would encourage you to highlight Genesis 49.10, though, in your Bible, because this passage is pretty much fairly universally recognized by Jewish sources as being messianic. This is not an afterthought from Gentiles. This, this is Jewishly thought, if that's a word, Jewishly thought, to be messianic. This is about the Messiah. Some people aren't sure how to translate the word Shiloh. Does it, is it a name, Shiloh, or is it, does it mean uh, to whom it belongs? Uh, well, either way you translate it, it ends up meaning the same thing. This is reference to Messiah. Genesis 49 10. Let me read it one more time. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah was the royal line. All the kings were in the line of Judah. The scepter, the royalty, will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, so his, his descendants of being royalty, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, or of the nations. That word people refers to not only the Jews, but nations, right? The, the, the overall arching groups of people. Now, when did the scepter depart from Judah in history? Well, we've, we've, we've had the genealogical records of who's descended from Judah up until about 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, they lost the records that were there in the temple. They lost the genealogical records. Nowadays, it's very, very hard for a Jew to prove that they are from any particular tribe. Nowadays, like if, if you say, I am a, I'm a Cohen, then, then okay, you're a priestly class because you say so. Like we don't, we'll just trust your family tradition, but we don't really know what the genealogical records are. Whereas Jesus has genealogical records for him as, as all the Jews did for his time. They all knew where they were from. They knew what tribe they'd come from. So the scepter is Judah's tribal identity as the ruler, and that departed from them in 70 AD. So before 70 AD, this Messiah has got to show up. This ruler has to come who's in this, in this line of Judah. So then it narrows a little further. In the line of Judah, 
Now there's a particular house or family called the family of Jesse or the family of David. Jesse is David's dad, so the same basic family. Isaiah 11.1 1 talks about this. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This term, the branch, becomes a, an important messianic term in the scriptures, but this branch grows out of his roots. Um, Jesse's story is actually in the book of Ruth, and you can, you can read about it. A really neat story. The book of Ruth, people don't realize as they read the story of Ruth that it's, it's David's grandma. I mean, this is like, this is like the, the family of David. You know, they, Ruth gets married. She has a kid. It's Jesse. Jesse's kid's David. It's pretty interesting stuff. Pretty interesting. And it all connects to the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, the whole Old Testament seems to be centered around the genealogy of this particular individual. Now, when it comes to, the king, to king David, there are tons of scriptures. In fact, there's so many scriptures that talk about the Messiah being a descendant of David that he became known as the son of David. It becomes a messianic title. It becomes a messianic title. So let me just read some of them to you, just to give you a smattering. Second um, Samuel 7.16, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, God speaking to David. Your throne shall be established forever. David is promised a forever throne. There will always be a throne for your family, David. There will always be a throne. But let me read on. But who will be on that throne? Is it multiple descendants, always a new king? No, it's not. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. For unto us a child is born. Sound familiar? Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now these are, to to a Christian this makes sense. This fits the theology of who Jesus is. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And here's the part we often ignore, but this is sort of the most important part. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God's going to do it with great zeal. This is a big deal. There's a descendant coming from the house of David who will inherit the kingdom and he will always be the king forever period, end of story. And the increase of his government will know no end. In other words, his kingdom will eventually encompass the entire planet. All, all beings will be submitted to this king. It's not just for Jews. It's for all people. That's interesting. A single eternal ruler in the line of David. My oh my. There's so many verses. I, I, I actually have to not share more than I can share with you guys because of the stuff. But let me read to you Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6. Another messianic Reference, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch, there's that word, branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Something about this future Davidic ruler is that he, he's our righteousness. I mean, this so fits Christian theology, Jesus is our righteousness. So, my point here is that there's an expectation of a kingly descendant of David who comes from Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and Judah and Jesse and David and that there's this guy's going to come before 70 AD and show up. In fact, this became rather entrenched in the minds of the Jews even in Jesus's time. It says in Matthew 22, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asks them a question. He says to them, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answer him, the son of David. 
Do you see how they had an expectation? There was a Messiah. They already knew this. He was going to be a descendant of David. In the Gospels, we have, and you might have thought this was boring and wonder why it was there, but we have two genealogies about Jesus, don't we? We have one in Matthew, one in Luke. Matthew records the genealogy from Joseph's line, and Luke records the genealogy from Mary's line going up and eventually meeting together because they have common ancestors. So we see that from Joseph, his adopted dad, and from Mary, his biological mother, they're both Davidic in their descendants. So he was legitimately the son of David, which is important because he's, he's a king of Israel. In fact, he died being convicted of being the king of the Jews. This is, this, is, this is neat, right? But we're just getting started. This is still generic because Jude is a big, lot, large group of people. So we should narrow it down further. Um, in Deuteronomy 18, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, it talks about that there, there will this one day come, not only a kingly person, but this Messiah will also have a prophetic role and that this person will come and they'll be like Moses in some ways. So let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 and 19, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, God says to Moses, from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, that I will require it of him. Jesus seemed to speak from this type of authority. He's like, you don't hear my words because you're, you don't even know, you don't even know God. Like he's just straight up says, I'm the dividing line between heaven and hell. Between right and wrong, it's how you respond to me. That's what this Old Testament prophecy was like. But there are many, even modern Jews, who would say, well, Mike, God raised up lots of prophets like Moses. You know, Joshua. Like, all, all sorts of people were raised up like Moses, except at the end of Deuteronomy, we're left with the feeling that this prophecy had not been fulfilled. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 says this, But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. There has not arisen whom the Lord knew face to face. So the idea is that this prophecy hangs unfulfilled by the, by the occurrence of these other individuals. And they're waiting. They're just waiting. Who will be this prophet like unto Moses? So then you wonder, in the New Testament where they said, who do, who do men say that I am? And some people go, well, some think you're the prophet. Well, they were, they were referring to this. That they thought maybe, maybe he's the prophet. What happened, though, in rabbinic literature and, and, and Jewish rabbi's ideas is they thought, oh, he'll be like Moses. So like Moses, who did what? He came and he first introduced himself to Israel as the deliverer. And then what? He was rejected. And then he went and he went to sort of the Gentile lands and prospered there. And then he came back and the second time he was received. And so there are rabbis who think that like Moses, like several other characters, Joseph, Jephthah, these other characters in the Bible, that the Messiah is going to be rejected, hidden, and then received. And there'll be the sort of three stages of his ministry. The Messiah rejected, hidden, and then received. This is a, this is a rabbinical view. This is not a, a Christian perspective here. David was like this. Anointed king, but not received right away. Hidden, hiding in the caves and stuff like that. And finally received years later. Uh, Joseph was like this. <clears throat> we read uh, several people like this. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen uses this to preach to the, to the Jews. He's like, hey, you guys rejected all the prophets. Like you rejected, and you rejected Jesus. And he starts to draw the parallels, a prophet like Moses. 
Interesting. And, and Jesus also, when he was an infant, you know, under attack and all these things. There are these, in other words, some of the prophecies are seen as prophetic parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of some of these other characters in the Old Testament. The difference is that Jesus, the slavery which he came to deliver us from, was not the slavery of Egypt, but the slavery of sin. As he says, um, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in a house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. That he came to deliver us from, in a sense, a greater slavery. A much greater slavery than, than that of uh, Egypt. But there's so much more. All right, now we've got warmed up. Let's start. There's so much more. And, I've, and I'm, I'm grateful because I've already laid the groundwork for this with the previous study. So now I can just refer back. I'll put, uh, if you're watching this video online, I'll put the links in the description for Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, we get a reference to the time period when Messiah is going to show up. Not only before the destruction of the temple, but even more detailed than that, Daniel 9 gives us the day of his entrance into Jerusalem. Even, even, a, a, even alternate interpretations give us still the lifetime of Jesus. It still lands in the lifetime of Jesus with Daniel 9. It's really interesting stuff. We're also told us before the scepter departs from Judah. That happened in 70 AD. This is why... The Talmud, which was written after the time of Christ, says all the appointed times for Messiah have passed. Because they knew the time had already been fulfilled. So I recommend looking at Daniel 9. Check out that video if you guys want to get refreshed on it. Um, but when you take, oh, oh he's got to be a descendant of, of David. Okay, he's got to be a prophet like, as, like Moses and this and that. But now it also narrows it down to a window of time that fits just the life of Jesus. Or maybe somebody else that was alive when he was alive. But it's in that exact time period. It's got to be right then and no later. It, can't, it couldn't have happened in 1200 AD. It's not possible. It couldn't happen today. It's too late. The Bible talks in detail about the manner of the death of Christ. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53. We, went, we have videos on each of those subjects. In detail, we went over those prophecies. Just bring them back to your mind now and think, okay, so we have the time period. We have the manner of death. We have the genealogy the types of things that this Messiah will do. It has to be a public death. It can't be a secret assassination. It has to be crowds that are against him. It has to be a judicial execution. It has to be for the sin of others, not his own sins. He has to not open his mouth and defend himself in this death. Um, he has to be stretched out. He has to have it be, his bones out of joint. He has to be dehydrated. He has to be beaten. All these, he has to have hands and feet pierced. The details of the death of Christ are, in fact, do you know the most detailed accounts of Jesus' death were all written hundreds of years before he was born. Let that sink in. It blows my mind. And his resurrection is also prophesied. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, 10. We went over these passages already. His resurrection is prophesied. Now, am I, am I using the fact that it was prophesied to prove that it happened? No, but I'm at least saying it sort of narrows down the possible candidates, doesn't it? Because here we have the one who actually is claimed to have been raised, who have been raised, and I have a video on that. I'll try and put that in the description too. Evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, pretty amazing stuff. Suffering then exaltation. Again, the rabbis saw a biblical pattern of a rejected, then hidden, then revealed Messiah, and this is what we're seeing today. Jesus was rejected by a lot of the Jews of his time, not all of them, but a lot of the Jews of his time. Then he went out to the Gentiles, and there he's gathered together so many people to, to come and follow Christ. But now he's being revealed. And even now, many, many Jews are coming to Christ and coming to faith in the Messiah. It's a beautiful thing. So I think he's being revealed as we speak. But there's so much more. 
Okay, Micah 5.2. It tells us where this Messiah is going to be born. The town of his birth. It says Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It's called Ephrathah because there's two Bethlehems. This is the sp- a specific Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. There's a future where he'll be born, but yet he's been already existing, doing stuff before this. This, I mean, it fits Christian theology perfectly. He's pre-existent, but he'll be born here in Bethlehem. And so Christ, for every record we have, was born in Bethlehem. We have no contrary accounts. We only have a single voice, a single, I should say, in unison, a couple voices, that all say he was born in Bethlehem. In fact... When the wise men left and didn't come back to see Herod, Herod got together the Jews and he said, where's Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, Bethlehem. And so there he went and there he attacked the children. So he calculated backwards using the scripture first to figure out where this had happened. Pretty interesting stuff. So we have um, a narrowing down of the field. Okay, it's got to be now the house of David. It has to be at the time of Jesus when he came. It has to be born in a specific town in Bethlehem. He has to have had a forerunner, somebody who went before him, who, b- before he shows up, who's already preaching and pointing others towards him. That's interesting. Most people don't have that. I certainly don't have that. <laughs> you probably don't. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts, the messenger of the covenant. He'll bring this, this message of the covenant, which fits Christ as well. This timing, he'll, it says that this messenger goes before the Lord, and then it's before the Lord, yet, yeah, but then the one comes who's the messenger of the covenant. It's, it's interesting how the, the, the pronouns are, it's God, and then it's the one who's coming, the Messiah, and they're almost interchangeable. Interesting. And that this Messiah is going to come where? To the temple. Now that temple during uh, Malachi's writing, was the second temple, right? The first temple had been destroyed. The second one was built. It was standing. And where is he coming? He's coming to this temple. But in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. Meaning that if this prophecy was to be fulfilled, it had to have happened before 70 AD. So again, we're narrowing it down. We're just getting an agreement from various places in the Bible that all point with, you know, 100 arrows pointing to Jesus. He also is supposed to come into Israel, into Jerusalem in particular, riding on a donkey coming humbly on a donkey. This is interesting. It says in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He'll come into Jerusalem. He'll come in on a donkey. He'll bring salvation and he'll come with humility and humbly. Who does that sound like to you? It's got to be born in Bethlehem, descendant of David. It's got to be in the same time as Christ does this. And he did this exact thing. His kingly entrance was there lowly and humbly bringing what? Salvation. Now there's other passages that talk about another kingly entrance, a second kingly entrance where he comes bringing dominion. And that is yet to be fulfilled. So they knew what Jesus was doing when he entered in on that donkey. They all knew real well what was going on that day, which is why the Pharisees were like, hey, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. They're proclaiming you as king. This triggered the crucifixion after he came in on Palm Sunday, declaring himself to be the king. This is why the Babylonian Talmud, check this out. 
the Talmud also has a, a, an interchange between these two pastors, or two rabbis, excuse me. Uh, Rabbi Hillel, he says, There shall be no Messiah for Israel because they've already enjoyed him in the days of Hezekiah. So this particular rabbi thinks Messiah came way back hundreds of years ago in the days of Hezekiah. And then the Talmud's quoting this in order to rebuke it. But listen to how the Talmud rebukes this. It says, May God forgive him for saying so. Now, when did Hezekiah flourish? This was great during the first temple in the past. Yet, and now it quotes the passage I quoted, Zechariah prophesied in the days of the second temple, proclaiming, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king is coming unto thee. He's just and having salvation lowly and riding upon a donkey, upon the colt, the foal of a donkey. Even in Jewish thought, in other words, Zechariah 9 is a messianic passage. This is about the Messiah, and it was being used in their apologetics to say, No, the Messiah hasn't come yet because he's going to come to the second temple, not the first. The second temple. Interesting stuff. I have a Jewish friend who was uh, raised in Jewish school, in Jewish religious school, and he was hearing, I believe it was this passage, if my memory serves, where he said he heard about how the Messiah was supposed to come in on a donkey. And he, and he was just a little kid at the time, and he thought, you know what? That's it. And he just quit believing in Judaism. He says it was because he thought to himself, if this was going to happen, it should have happened a long time ago. And he abandoned his faith in Judaism at that exact moment. And it was years later when he heard about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, when he suddenly realized it had happened, it had been fulfilled. It just blew him away. And now he's in ministry as a pastor and serves the Lord. Um, still Jewish, of course. In fact, he's more Jewish than ever. There's other passages too. Psalm 110 talks about how he'll be a priest and a king. How he'll, he'll be this Melchizedekian priesthood. I'd love to get into that. It's just, we don't have time to talk about all of it. Um, I will say this. The unexplained passages of the Old Testament make sense in light of Jesus. There's so many things that happen in the Old Testament where you go, I don't, why is, what's going on there? And in light of Messiah, it just clicks and it makes total sense. It happens over and over again. Messiah also, according to Isaiah 7:14, was born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Some people say, well, that's, that's just a young maiden will conceive, not a virgin will conceive. And I'm like, well, how is that a sign? A young maiden gets pregnant. Like, this isn't a sign, right? But a, a young a virgin maiden conceives. That's a sign. There's a whole debate there. Um, but I, we, I'll spare you guys the, the time it takes to get into that debate. And I'll just say this. Um, do a little bit of research if anybody challenges you on that. There's plenty of resources out there answering any objections to the virgin birth. Plenty of them out there. Now, I'm not saying here that this proves the virgin birth. I'm not even trying to prove the virgin birth. But there's only one candidate I'm aware of from history who at least has a claim to fulfill this passage. That would be Jesus. So it's another point referencing Christ here in the Old Testament. Let me read to you another one of these just neat, neat things. Speaking of virgin birth or the idea that there's a deity inside this humanity, that, there's, that God you know, comes and dwells among us, God with us, Emmanuel. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. I love this passage. It says, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Who is it speaking of? God, right? It's talking about God and his power. He made the ends of the earth. He's all, done all this stuff. What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know it? And then it never answers the question. It just leaves it hanging there for a thousand years until Jesus shows up. <laughs> and then 
boom, there he is. I know his name. Right? His name is Yeshua. He is Jesus. He is the one who fulfilled it. He is the son of God. He is the son of God, which is a, is a claim to deity, not uh, some weird Roman claim to be some, you know, demigod thing. No, this is a Jewish context here, not a Roman one. So the Messiah is also said, not only born of a virgin, not only son of David and all this other stuff, place of his birth, have a forerunner, come in on a donkey into Israel as he did. He's also said to perform miracles. Let me read to you a couple passages on that. Uh, now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying this proves Jesus performed miracles, but I'm saying that if you have a messianic character, you at least better have accounts of him doing miracles if you want to say it's messianic. Does that make sense? Um, Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Then Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness... And will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This actually, this passage, Isaiah 42, the, I read, read the whole chapter. It's, the, it's one of those my servant passages in Isaiah that is clearly messianic. It's all about Jesus. It's, I mean, just read it. It's just neat stuff. I'm just sharing you a portion of it. Like Isaiah 52 and 53, once you hit that phrase, my servant, in those chapters... It's just clearly about Christ. Now, Jesus either did miracles or was at least believed to do miracles. Even, even the, the, the Jewish reports against him said that he did those miracles through the power of Satan. Notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, you never perform miracles, you're a hoax. As some of the faith healers on TV, I would just say, well, you're not even doing miracles. You're just, you're just amping people up and then they turn the cameras away before their, you know, their adrenaline passes and they fall on the ground. Um, but, but in this case, it's like, no, he definitely did miracles. We've known this guy for 40 years, and he's been healed, so we got no defense, except it must be the devil, you know, it's instead, of, instead of God. So they, they even recognized that his miracles seemed to be legitimate. There are a lot of passages in the scripture that talk about the fact that Israel will reject this Messiah, believe it or not. Psalm 118 is a messianic passage. It's actually the same um, part that was quoted, the same chapter of the Psalms that was quoted when Jesus entered in on the donkey into Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna in the highest. This is the same Psalm. And it says the stone, Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Speaking of Messiah, that the builders are going to reject him, but yet he will still be the chief cornerstone. I mean, this fits entirely with Jesus. Did they see Jesus as the Messiah? Without any question, they did. They took the Psalm 118 and they applied it directly to Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting this exact chapter. They really saw Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus saw Jesus as the Messiah. Everybody uh, who, who turned to him believed that he was. But this Messiah was going to be rejected by his own people. Isaiah 53 talks a little bit about it. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness. And, we, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. The we here is Israel. Israel's not going to want him. They're not going to desire him. They're not going to be attracted to him. Zechariah 12.10, it says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. 
One of the oldest rabbinical commentaries on the verse I just read to you says that it is, and it's in the Talmud, says that it is about the Messiah. Do you catch that? This isn't cherry picking where I as a Gentile go to the Old Testament and grab random verses and say it's about Jesus. This is thought to be messianic by people who don't even believe in Jesus. They will look on him who they pierced. So there's a rejection there. In fact, he'll be betrayed by a friend. And Zechariah 11 tells us how much that betrayal amount is for. Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13. Zechariah has a lot of messianic stuff in it. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So they took, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and they threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. This is really interesting the way it's worded. This passage was fulfilled in great detail. The, the money's to be thrown into where? The house of the Lord. But it doesn't go to the Lord, does it? Where does it go? It goes to the potter to buy the field of the potter. Well, Judas, he betrayed Jesus for this exact amount, 30 pieces of silver. The New Testament records it. And unless you're just assuming that it's wrong because you don't want it to be right, then that's the historical account we have. So he takes 30 pieces of silver from them. He goes, he betrays Jesus. Afterward, he feels guilty. He goes back and he says, I can't take this money. And then the Jews say say to him, well, we can't take it back. It's blood money. Hypocrites, right? (laughs) These particular guys. And then he throws the money down. He just tosses it on the ground. Where? At the temple. There he throws it on the ground near the house of the Lord. And then he runs off and he commits suicide. He kills himself. He hangs himself. Maybe he gets bloated or whatever. He busts open and, and basically soils. It's nasty, right? What happens where he hangs himself, it's a defiled location now. It's like a cursed place because there's a man who hanged himself on a tree there. It's just gross. It's wrong. So what do they do? They use the money to buy that very field and they let people bury strangers, dead strangers in that field. That field was the potter's field. So we have this greatly detailed fulfillment of this intricate stuff. Intricate stuff. Now, the only real accusation you can have against this is conspiracy. We know it was written ahead of time. We know that the New Testament records fulfillment. And if, if if anybody's out there and you're like, conspiracy, man, New Testament, total conspiracy. They just made all that stuff up. I will get to you in time, I promise. Like in the, in the course of our series, we'll eventually get to, has the Bible been changed? Do they just make this stuff up? We'll get there. We'll get there. But I, I just can't cover every topic in one message, right? We got to cover things piecemeal so we can do them well. But wow, this, only, this passage, Zechariah 11, for instance, it's an example of a passage that doesn't make any sense apart from Jesus. In Jesus, it, the light goes on. But apart from Christ, it's like a veil's there. You don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. There's also, and these are often overlooked, and I'm about to share with you, regularly overlooked by people. There are prophecies about the impact Messiah will have in the world. This is, this is amazing because only Jesus in the history of mankind has had this kind of impact on mankind. Genesis 49.10, which I read earlier, it said that multiple nations, the nations, will become obedient to this Messiah. The nations. In Isaiah 42.4, it says the islands going out to the distances will be waiting for his teachings. There'll be, there'll be Gentiles in faraway lands will be waiting to hear what this Messiah has said. In Psalm 2, it talks about the worldwide dominion of the Messiah. He will end up being a king all over the world. In Isaiah 49.6, it says that he's going to be a light to the nations, not just to the Jews. Let me read this verse to you. 
So hopefully you're still with me. I know I've been throwing tons of stuff at you, but you knew this was coming. This was because <laughs> this is the nature of bouncing all over the Bible to grab all these prophecies. Isaiah 49, 6, it says, Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. Here's a my servant passage in Isaiah. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. It's not enough that you would only help Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You will be my light to the world. Jesus came and said, I am the light of the world. Not just the Jews, all people. Messiah, it is said, will be the one who impacts and extends the knowledge of God throughout the world. The God of Israel, the God of Israel, truth about him will be carried to the whole planet Earth because of Messiah. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with history. My ancient ancestors worshipped pagan deities, ridiculous religions, okay? Ridiculous, weird stuff. Yours probably did too except for Jesus, his impact came in and changed everything. Changed everything. Messiah is supposed to extend the knowledge of the true God of Israel to the world, and this is exactly what Jesus did. I worship Yahweh. I worship the God of Israel. I I bow at the feet of the Messiah of Israel. My Old Testament is their Old Testament. (laughs) I I am much more Jewish than I am Gentile because of him. Think about this. Think about it. In fact, let me read to you a quote from uh, Michael Brown. This is a fantastic quote. Michael Brown is a, a great resource for this kind of stuff. He wrote a book called Answering, well, four-volume series called Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, which I, I, I think it's great, fun reading, um, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, but I'm like that. <clears throat> he put it this way. He says, just consider, just consider how utterly absurd it would have been if you stood at the foot of the cross as Yeshua suffered a torturous, ignominious, shameful death And someone told you, 2,000 years from now, this man will be the world's most famous Jew. And world history will be divided into the years before his birth and the years after his birth. Hundreds of millions of people from all world religions will forsake their idols and their dead traditions and will instead become followers of the God of Israel through him. Yes, this is the literal truth without hint of exaggeration. We dare not downplay the significance of this. And remember that it was in Psalm 22 that the worldwide impact of Messiah's death and resurrection were foreshadowed. The scriptures plainly declaring that as a result of his deliverance from death, the Gentiles would turn to the one true God. Nowadays, today, there are over 2 billion people who say that they bow at the feet of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. No human being on earth has had the impact on human lives as Jesus has. And not just by inventing Facebook. How many people, I mean, how many Muslims say, oh, Islam changed my life. But how many Christians say Jesus changed my life? I mean, he changed my life. It gets cliche. People think we're just making stuff up. And they don't get it. They don't know. Like, no, he like did. <laughs> he actually did. Like, I could see the difference. Massive, huge difference in my life because of Jesus Christ. This this is the Messiah of Israel. I mean, it's Jesus or it's nobody. Only he did this to die the substitutionary death on the cross, to be born in Bethlehem, to come at the right time in the history of Israel, to be a descendant of King David. To come and enter into, after a forerunner comes, he enters into Jerusalem on the donkey. 
He comes and it fulfills all these different things. Mirac- uh, the miraculous ministry of this Messiah. The, uh, the nature of his, of, of his being light to the world. And the impact after he dies and rises to change the globe. And he still does. Uh, it, yeah. But that's just, we're just scratching the surface. I mean, that's really all the time we have for prophecies. But we're scratching the surface. Because other than direct prophecies, where I, where I quoted some of them to you today, there are allusions. That's a little like a verse here or there, a little idea here or there. There's also pictures like the life of Moses, Joseph, David, Jephthah, Solomon, Song of Solomon's, uh, the book itself, Ruth, Jonah, and his story. I mean, we, we get constantly, Jesus is the meta narrative in the Bible. Meta, it's, there's narratives and meta narratives. I mean, how many of you guys, you've watched a show where somebody on the TV show, they're, they're helping somebody out on this one episode, but somehow the person they're helping, that becomes a capsulized example of what the main character is going through in the overall season or seasons of the show. Do you know what I mean? Oh, this person, I helped them with their father issues, and then I suddenly realized, that, hey, that's really about his father issues. with it. You know what I mean? It's, it's like how it, how it correlates. And so when you see that the stories of Moses and, and, I mean, all these different characters, how they really parallel Jesus. They're really just painting over and over a picture of Jesus. All you have to do is read the Bible. It's right there. The law also foreshadows Christ in the details of the law. The existence of the high priest and his functions. The design of the temple pictures Christ. The sacrifices themselves. The many events of the Bible, like the flood. Like Moses striking the rock two times. Right? Like like the, um, the bronze serpent. Like just... You name it, Jonah and the whale, or the the big fishy thing, whatever it happened to be, right? These things are parallels of Christ over and over again, so that Jesus is not only directly prophesied, but he's also pictured throughout the scriptures. But some people respond this way. They go, Mike, I could find anyone in the Bible the same way that you find Jesus. I could find anybody. I could find, like, Hitler in there, and he'd be the Messiah. Really? Go for it. You go for it. You get your Hitler passages together and come and demonstrate them to us. Submit them to our criticisms and our questions. Please. I beg you. Moses, uh, Moses, uh, Muhammad tried this. There's actually some of the, in, in the Islamic religion that believe that Muhammad is prophesied in the Old Testament. And the passages they go to are laughable. But they're not the only ones who've tried this. You know who else tried this? Mormons, who know the Bible very well, have tried to say that there's this passage in the scripture that talks about the stick of Joseph. Oh, and that, that's talking about Joseph Smith, guys. But you read the passage, you're like, are you serious? But of all the Bible, how many verses have they found to point to Moses? How many passages have they found to point to, to Joseph Smith? One. One each that are clearly are not about him. Why? Because it's not that easy to be the Messiah of Israel. The prophecies are specific. They're detailed. They're dated. It's, you just can't fake this stuff. Either Jesus is the Messiah, or there is no Messiah. Either Jesus is the fulfillment, and God has been at work through Jesus, expanding the truth of God throughout the world for the past 2,000 years, or God has done almost nothing for 2,000 years. It's pretty, it's pretty stark, the contrast, the, the possibilities that we're given here. Um, what I want to share with you right now, though, is uh, the chances. Let, let's, we've taken some of these prophecies. Now let's take the idea that... Um, that we can put a statistical number on these prophecies. Because I think this is a great way to illustrate how ridiculous it is to think that Jesus just happened 
to fulfill these prophecies. It was just a coincidence. So for that, I have my, my handy dandy PowerPoint presentation, my skills. Okay, so what are the chances? What are the chances? There's a professor named Peter Stoner in the last century who used the science of probability to examine the chances that eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, just eight of them, could be fulfilled by any one person. Just any one person. For example, he took like, say, how many people enter into Jerusalem on a donkey proclaiming themselves as king? And they, and they were super generous with the statistics. They said, one in a hundred. <laughs> like, we'll say one in a hundred people enter into Jerusalem on a So they were really overly generous. Like, I, I'd encourage anyone, grab these prophecies, put any numbers you want on them. You'll see how ridiculous it is to think that Jesus isn't fulfilling them. So he used eight prophecies and found through the math of probability, that the chances of anyone, any human being on earth, fulfilling these eight prophecies would be one in the power of, in 10 to the 17th power. That's a big number. If you're like me, 10 with a little 17 after it doesn't mean very much. So let me, let me lay out, here's your 17 zeros. It's 100 quadrillion, right? Not million, not billion, not trillion, quadrillion. That's a big number but it still doesn't make sense to us, right? As we've proven with our national debt, we don't understand big numbers. We're like, what's another zero? So I want you to imagine the state of Texas. Do you have it in your head? Imagine this. How many of you have driven through Texas? It's big, right? I mean, it's, it's big. It's big. Texas is big. Texas is really big. I'm going to show you <laughs> I actually have a PowerPoint point on Texas is really big. I'm going to show you how big Texas is, how big Texas is superimposed on top of a map of Europe. So here's Texas on top of Europe. That's how big Texas is. Does, now, now is it clicking? Like, man, that's big. We gotta, like, that, that could be its own country, and maybe one day soon it will be. Who knows what's going on in America right now? So there's Texas. It's bigger than Germany. It's bigger than France. It's bigger than Italy. Or it's, it's bigger than so many of these places. So 268,820 square miles. Square miles. Now, why am I telling you about the state of Texas? Okay, so imagine the state of Texas. Now, imagine if you covered the state of Texas in silver dollars. Like I took a silver dollar and I put it in every single square inch is covered with a silver dollar. But that's not enough. Now I'm going to put another silver dollar and another silver dollar until it is two feet thick covered in silver dollars, the state of Texas. Guess how many silver dollars I have? 100 quadrillion. (laughs) So now, now you have like an image of how many, the numbers of 100 quadrillion is a lot. It's a very big number. Now, what are the chances that one person would sort of, oops, you know, like I just sort of fulfilled the prophecies, these prophecies that were written beforehand in the Old Testament. It's the chances that you could pick the right coin given one shot. So I'm going to take you and I'm going to blindfold you. And you're going to travel around through the ocean of silver dollars in Texas and you get to walk around for as long as you want. And then randomly at some point, you're just going to bend down, dig through, and you're going to pick one coin. Now, you have to pick the right coin. If it's not the right coin, it doesn't count. But if it's the right coin, I put one little tiny dot in the middle of it, a little sharpie. If it's that coin and you pick the right one, those are the chances that Jesus would accidentally fulfill these eight prophecies. Those are the chances. Giving generous chances. That is only eight. There was a lot more than eight. <laughs> these, these things, the math here has actually been affirmed by the American Scientific Affiliation, just for anybody who's curious. I'll just throw that out there. But then Peter Stoner thought, well, what if we took 40? 
40 of the prophecies of Christ, of Messiah, that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. What if we took those? So he did. He took 40 prophecies, and they did the math, very generous numbers being given, very conservative. And they came up with this number, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That looks like this. <laughs> now, I don't know what number this is called, <laughs> or I'm sure there's a name for it somewhere. Maybe, maybe Kirk knows you're a mathematician, maybe you know. I don't know. I'm sure you can figure it out. Um, but just so you can see, I'll show you where on this big number, where is 100 quadrillion? It's right there. Those yellow zeros, that's 100 quadrillion. There's all your silver dollars covering Texas. But then the number just keeps getting bigger. Each zero there is a magnitude of 10 times more. So how many is 10 to the 157th power? Now, electrons... <laughs> Imagine the electrons. These are tiny, tiny little things, right? Electrons. That, that, that's, what, uh, that's what makes Pokemon work. And if you took electrons and you put them all smashed together and put them in a single file line, you would fit in, in a one-inch line, you would fit 19 million electrons. Now take a square inch. So you have a cube of solid electrons. One square inch of electrons would be 10 to the 18th power. Or... 10 states of Texas covered two feet deep with silver dollars. That's just one square inch of electrons. But one in 10 to the 157th power, this number is so big that we can't use Texas even covered in electrons. How many square inches of electrons? We have to fill the entire universe with electrons. The 20 billion light years of electrons all packed in. And then what I do is I give you a special spaceship that can fly all over the universe anywhere you want. Let's say it's shaped like, I don't know, like a phone booth. And you fly around in this little phone booth spaceship all over the world. And at some point, you open the creakety doors and you hold out a little pair of super tweezers that I've given you. These tweezers are amazing. What they can do is they can grab out of the air one electron. So you fly all over the place. And what you know is I've taken a Sharpie, a very fine point Sharpie, and I've marked one electron. Just, right? I've, now, I've, I've just stirred up the whole universe. I put it out there. You fly around in your, in your you know, blue box of a spaceship. And there you go. You open the thing. You pull out your super tweezers. And you randomly grab an electron. What do you think the chances are that you've grabbed the right one? Yeah. yeah, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's what your chances are that you've grabbed the right one. And the universe is kind of big, in case you didn't know. So you get super tweezers. You get one attempt. And those are the chances that you fulfill 40 of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, I think that this is an interesting and fun exercise when you look at the statistics. The numbers aren't that important to me, um, which is why they're so conservative, because the point is, there's no way this just happened. There's just no way this just happened, that Jesus just coincidentally came at the right time, did all these things. Like, he's the Messiah of the Old Testament. Unless you take a position of such deep unbelief, that literally nothing in this world would ever change your mind, no matter what the evidence is. I think that God has given us good reason to believe, to trust in the authority of the word of God, because we have the Old and New Testaments affirming one another through foretelling of prophecy and fulfilling of prophecy. Now, what we're going to do as we continue this series is we're going to start to address other questions unrelated to prophecy, like, like how did they get the Old Testament? How do we get our New Testament? What about science? What about science in the Bible? What about archaeology? What about history? 
Um, has the Bible been changed over time? What about different translations? These types of things. I'm going to try to answer as many of these questions as I can. I'll take my time with it. I'll try to unpack things as slowly as, as my brain will allow me to. And we will, um, we will just dig in and have a continued growth and education on the things. If, if you guys have questions, I encourage you to ask them. I encourage you to hit me up. Say, can you cover this topic? Let me know if there's something on your heart. And I'm, I'm happy to go and spend 40 hours getting it ready and bringing it and sharing it with you. <laughs> I just like that stuff. You know, it's, I love it. So um, right now, though, we're just going to pray. And then we'll, uh, I'll open it up to questions and answers. You guys, we can, uh, we can go through that. So let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you because your word... Your word has laid out um, from Genesis to Malachi a picture of Jesus. And then we see him come. We have this 400-year gap between the, the, the last prophecy about him and then his appearance to, to make sure that we know that this was, in fact, foretold. I mean, he is the object of the Bible. It's just so beautiful. It's so wonderful. But it doesn't just stop at intellectually understanding that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. It doesn't stop until we have truly given our hearts to Christ and put our faith and trust in him, our Savior. We thank you because he did come and die, and he did pay for our sins, and he did change the world, and continues to all the time. And we just pray that you would uh, you, you just let us be those who have confidence and trust in you, who go out and proclaim these truths to others. And we pray, Father, for, uh, for whoever might be watching this video later, we ask that their lives would be changed. We ask that those who hear this kind of information, that they wouldn't let it sit until they get to the bottom of it, to get to the truth of it, that they would dig until their questions are answered, until, Lord, they come to know the true God of Israel. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace in our lives. May you love us enough to come and interrupt, interrupt our sin so that we can know you. In Jesus' name, amen.